Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, thanks for the download today. This is your host, Brandon Laws. In today's episode, I interview Matt Swartz. He's the founder and president of MJS Executive Search. They're located in New York. They're a boutique retained executive search firm working on searches throughout the United States and Canada. You can learn more about Matt and MJS at mjsearch.com. In our discussion today, Matt and I discuss recruiting, the importance of the employer brand, company culture, what makes an employee successful, and much more. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Matt, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Brandon. So Matt, you're the founder of MJS Executive Search. You guys specialize in transformational talent. Tell me what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So I founded MJS 15 years ago after about four years uh, as a principal at Hydrogen Struggles and then five and a half years with a uh, boutique firm in New York City. So in if you think back to 2002, 2003, the dot-com boom and bust had just happened. Companies had gone through spending millions of dollars building brands that disappeared overnight. And companies were a little gun-shy to uh, focus on marketing at that point. So we realized that if companies were going to be hiring and, and moving forward in their marketing efforts, that marketing better be measurable. A lot of the work that we did early on was focused on direct and database marketing, a little bit of email marketing. But then as time went on, we started to see the trends that companies were going through massive digital marketing transformations in their business. And so we then changed our positioning to digital marketing transformation. And while working with uh, American Express, one of their organizational development folks was so intrigued by some of the unique innovative roles that we had filled, she said, you know, you're probably not just involved in digital marketing transformation you're, you're involved in business reimagination on behalf of your clients. And I said, well, we are an executive search firm. I can't take credit for reimagining their business, but I can, we can take credit for helping them find this unique talent that will help them get there. And, and that's where transformational talent came about. And I've since trademarked that term. What that means to us is basically roles that have never existed before within our client's business skill sets that are not organic to the company or the industry, or roles that need a significant upgrade due to an infusion of digital marketing or technology. Whether we're working with a consumer goods company to a financial services organization, travel and hospitality, B2B, industrial, all of these companies are in need of this type of talent. And and that's what we specialize in, um, whether they're a cutting edge organization or a company that's looking to play catch up in their marketplace. 
I resonate with what you just said so much. I mean, I'm a, I'm a director of marketing for a regional company here in Portland, Oregon. And just in, in five years time, the evolution of my marketing role has changed so much because of technology. And, and I, I'm sure this isn't just true of marketing positions, but other industries as well, where just the needs have changed for positions. And it, it is interesting that you're, you're helping your clients find positions that don't necessarily exist yet, but there's no perfect job description or there's no current LinkedIn profile that probably matches those positions. So what are you doing to really find those kind of diamonds in the rough? We don't fabricate people, obviously, but we like to say that we invent them. And the way in which we do that is we are often looking for a mix of skills, a combination of skills and experience that tells a story and and allows this person to be relevant for this role. I'll give you a quick example. A handful of years ago, PepsiCo had bought back their bottlers. And with that acquisition, they acquired vending, fountain, and cooler equipment. And so they really weren't in that business, right? They were in the business of creating and and marketing and selling beverages and snacks. But they realized that a vending machine or a a piece of fountain equipment was an amazing opportunity to make a deep connection with their customer base. And they were calling that retailtainment. So imagine taking a vending machine and turning it into a giant touchscreen with facial recognition, the ability to play a video game or sing karaoke with Beyonce before you get your drink, while having uh, mobile payments, obviously, but also having the machines connected wirelessly so they could collect data for manufacturing supply chain maintenance insights, right? They came to us and said, hey, you know, can you find us engineers with MBAs who have created a product or service that had never existed before, changed the market, changed the paradigm, and you know could bring that skill set and that thinking to recreate vending fountain and cooler equipment. So we were looking at the Googles and the Apples and the Microsofts and, and a number of other highly innovative companies. And ultimately, our first placement was one of the individuals who helped create the Xbox Connect controller on behalf of Microsoft. And he had this dynamic experience. He actually had had some package goods experience earlier on in his career, but he would have been the first one to tell you that coming from Microsoft, he never in a million years thought his next stop would be a package goods company. And he went on to uh, have a, a, a number of years of great success driving this initiative on behalf of PepsiCo. You've had a long recruiting career, it sounds like. What's one of the, the aspects that have changed the most since you first started? The Need for retained executive search at the level that we work has shrunk a bit, and that's because mm. there are just outstanding recruiting departments within organizations. I mean, mm, some of our largest clients, one of our largest clients is Fidelity Investments. They have over 100 recruiters, and our top clients are outstanding search professionals. I mean, they are incredible But when it comes to some of these super highly specialized roles where we may reach out to three, four, five hundred people in order to get the two to five qualified and interesting candidates that are, you know, right for the role, open to their location, right for the culture, they don't have the bandwidth and in some cases the the knowledge of some of these more cutting edge skills to be able to make that happen. So again, I think corporate America especially has done a fantastic job building world-class search organizations and uh, they're great at what they do. Why do you think some organizations, large, small, why would they have an in-house recruiter versus hiring 
somebody who may already have a network built up of talent? Two things. If roles are repetitive and commoditized, Uh, it's much easier to do because you could build your own database. In some ways, we all have the same resources, but it's how you go about it. So that's one thing. If you put a $100,000 individual who could save the firm a million dollars in recruiting fees, it's obviously a <laughs> massive cost savings. And you know they could even pay these people you know, significantly higher than that. But I mean, there are a lot of junior and mid-level recruiters that, again, can save companies millions of dollars in, in, uh, in recruitment spend. How much of the recruiting process has become impersonal because of technology? You know, LinkedIn and some other communication tools. Like, I'm sure the recruiting process has completely changed. What's your perspective on it? It depends which perspective you're looking at it from. I would say our approach is highly personalized, definitely is not impersonal. But when a job seeker is applying to a large organization, it feels incredibly impersonal. There's a lot of technology involved with the applicant tracking systems that they use. They've got deep HR and legal requirements that they need to meet as far as reporting. So they have to have the the teleos of the world and things. And, and, and again, we're part of that process as well. But I know from, you know, we're again, a, a retained search firm, so we don't work on the job seeker side, but I do some public speaking and things and, and hear a lot of frustration from people who are applying to companies and, and really feeling like they're in a massive black hole and have trouble making connections with organizations and getting noticed. Well, it's interesting because for those job seekers that have that experience where they're just engaging with a gated form, applicant tracking system, just the technology where this, there's no personal touch, doesn't that impact the employer brand quite a bit? Like after a while, like they just have a bad experience. Either they don't get to the interview, they don't hear back. Don't they start to review on Glassdoor about how bad the experience was? And that just kind of snowballs. It does. It does. But I I mean, it's clear the best companies and the, the companies that are awarded as the best places to work, they're aware of that and definitely do a lot to push their employer brand as much as possible. I mean, I love what GE has done the last few years with their commercials and giving people awareness Mm -hmm. that, hey, this is a cutting edge place to work. And you could be a software developer inside GE and have an amazing high tech experience and and not have to go to Silicon Valley or, or New York to get that experience. And that's incredible. So I think, you know, G has done that. Again, have they done that on behalf of, of job seekers that are trying to get employed by GE? I'm not sure. But again, you you see this employer branding, you know, out there more and more and more. So you your executive search firm, you don't have the impersonal process. You you must have high touch. It sounds like you're a boutique firm. Mm-hmm. What are you doing differently compared to some of these big corporations that have their in-house recruiters and the job seekers are engaging with technology? Whereas what are you doing differently to make sure that you're staying in front of people and that they have a very tight connection with you? You're absolutely correct. We are extremely high touch. But from the very first contact, we me and my team, we hope not to waste anyone's time. So we are very brief and to the point in terms of who we are and what we're looking for and who we're working with and the the location of the role. Our first touch will most likely be through some sort of email or in-mail correspondence through LinkedIn. But then from there, we hope to answer their questions, screen them very quickly, and make sure they realize that we're not a uh, a body shop, you know, looking to throw people in to see if they stick. So that alone, I think, you know, people often thank us for 
our transparency and our honesty in the sense that we're going to let them know quickly if we think they're right for the role or ask them if they are open to be a network or a source for other candidates who could be appropriate for the opportunity. I think too many search firms get accused of reaching out to candidates and saying, hey, you know, I looked at your profile or I read about you online and and you could be perfect for this job. And very often, until you actually speak to that person, you can't make that claim that they're perfect for a role. There's so many nuances that go into it. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is because of LinkedIn and because people can do a advanced search and get a very long list of potential candidates, a lot of recruiters are incredibly lazy where they just go and send emails to every single one of those people that comes up on a search result where my team and and the researchers actually go in and look at each one one by one with a fine-tooth comb. So where a lot of other firms have less than 20% response rates, ours is closer to 40%, over 35%. Incredible. Um, Yeah, based on the fact that we are laser focused. So again, that laser focus will increase our hit rate, but also people are appreciative that, you know, we're reaching out to them because we truly think that they could be a good contact or source for us opposed to just, you know, sending it out to people and saying, who are these guys? They clearly don't know what they're doing because they're sending me this note that has nothing to do with me. And, you know, the LinkedIn search results are great, but they're not perfect. So we're very aware of uh, who we're sending information to. I imagine it really depends on the position that you're searching for to match somebody up to it. But what what are pieces of the profile and on LinkedIn, it sounds like that's probably the main tool that you're using. But what are the main pieces of the profile that that you look for? And what are some red flags for you? Maybe not filled out information or things like that? First of all, sometimes some of the most sparse LinkedIn profiles can be some of the best candidates. <laughs> you know, maybe they're so focused on their job and doing what they're doing that, you know, they don't feel it's that important. You know, they could be rock stars in what they do. Um, I mean, there are even a number of very senior executives who say, you know what, I don't even need to be on LinkedIn. And they're not there at all. So that's the first thing. I'm not going to say we yeah, don't put point. stock in the profile, but it's not the most important thing. To flip it on the other side is when we get a new retained search with a client, we help build the job description with them. We set their expectations. But then we create what we call an acid test, which is the three to six key criteria that a candidate must have in order to be qualified for the role. Those criteria are things that we can get competency-based examples on to be able to provide back to our client. But then behind the scenes, we also have to have the lens of understanding our client and their culture to be able to say, okay, these are the hard skills. These are the hard examples that these people need to have in order to be qualified. But then do we see any other nuances in their style or personality that are going to either align or not align with our clients' values? I was browsing your website before we hopped on today, and I ran across a blog post that you had about LinkedIn endorsements. And you actually kind of confirmed what I'd already thought about the endorsements. Can you share with listeners what you claim as the truth about LinkedIn endorsements and how recruiters actually kind of see see those on the profile? There really isn't much value to them. Any given day, LinkedIn serves me up a number of people that they're looking for me to endorse with keywords and, and, and areas that are appropriate. Basically, the endorsements are used as port of different keywords to uh, help build the SEO of candidates' profiles, and um, they're not a true representation. 
there's a huge difference between a true reference of a candidate uh, than you know the endorsements on on LinkedIn. They really have very little value or, or stock, you know, in terms of building that that individual's credibility. Going back to your comment earlier about how LinkedIn's sort of not the end all be all, and, and that some highly skilled people, uh, executives, aren't even on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. How are you finding those people, and are they finding you organically, or are you sort of plucking them from some other place? That's a great question. If people are talented, they're known. There's something about them. Seth Godin says it best. You know, someone may not be famous, but they're famous to the family. Within the world that they're in, they're famous, right? These people could be speakers at conferences. They could uh, have a podcast or a blog. They may publish white papers in their area of expertise. The- these are all things that we look for beyond just finding them on LinkedIn. They could be award winners. You know, whatever their area of specialty is, there's often some sort of an award program where these people are recognized at some point in their career. Once we find that initial nugget, we'll then dig deeper to search them out and figure out where they are today, you know, go and pursue them based on our understanding of their background. What are some of the skill sets for leaders that are in just high demand right now? So we are seeing a huge influx of people needed in the big data and artificial intelligence arena. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you'd say Yeah. That. So that has been just game changing. The, the most sophisticated clients know they need to utilize data. They need to get deeper in terms of personalization and, and content curation on their websites. Security and fraud protection is, is at the forefront of everyone's mind. Utilizing all of the insights that they have from Every client customer contact, whether it's call center, whether it's retail, whether it's the knowledge base, whatever it may be, those are all opportunities to gather data and create product improvements or process improvements for their organization. So definitely one. Safe to say it's like always technology related. It is. At some level. It is. The second thing is uh, media. Companies that were spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on television ads were all of a sudden finding, obviously, people aren't watching TV. Their ads are less effective. They need to spend their dollars in a much more focused, programmatic fashion. So finding those leaders who know how to do that with significant media spends is super, super challenging. We've been tapped to find those people as well. Anything related to disruption in technology, we recently had a placement where the candidate needed to figure out what technologies are needed to help the associates of this organization communicate and collaborate across the company because where the older generation might be okay receiving 20 emails a day from corporate, the new generation kind of looks at that as as, uh, white noise and you know, very slow. So how can it look more like Facebook? How, you know, do they use Slack? Do they use Facebook for work? Do they use Jive? You know, whatever it may be. But, you know, having one central individual get a deep understanding of what the employee population looks like, evaluate the different technologies that are out there and figure out what's not only going to suit the organization, but then choose it and implement it and gain usage across the enterprise. When you're doing a recruiting gig for, let's say, like a senior leader of some sort, it could be president, CEO, or I don't want to go necessarily the marketing leader necessarily, but what's the balance between understanding these technologies and knowing what you need for the business and also being a great people leader? Because it seems like the leaders of the past, definitely they're great people leaders. 
They know how to inspire action. They hire the right people. But now it almost sounds like what you're seeing is people who also have a very deep understanding of these technologies and what the business needs from a data standpoint. You bring up an amazing point. We recently conducted a research project on behalf of one of our clients that was looking for, call it a chief digital officer. We looked across their competition, uh, as well as many other consumer-centric, data-driven companies that they respected. And more and more, we didn't find the kind of rock star candidates that we would expect to be in these roles who were somewhat all-knowing and, and super strategic. But instead, we found these organizations uh, had put in very strong leaders who knew enough to be dangerous, had a great sense of where the industry was going and where what tools and, and skill sets they needed to make their organization successful. And then they would have a number of key direct reports that were functional experts in these different areas to be able to drive the success of their organizations. I'm sure you run across a ton of talented people. I'm really curious, when you say, here's a great candidate for this employer, but maybe they're not a match, what are great candidates with talent? What are they looking for when it comes to an employer? Culture, compensation, specific benefits? Like, What are you seeing? Two things. The number one reason why our candidates often make a move beyond just the compensation increase is the strategic challenge that they're going to be facing. Yeah. They really are interested in it for the intellectual opportunity, but also an opportunity to make a difference within their organization um, that they're moving on to. And, and that's a huge shift from where things were in the past. It used to just be like, oh, you know, go from one job to another job, but it wasn't such a tectonic shift as it is today. So that's been fascinating how often I hear that across the candidates that we're, um, we're talking to. Secondly, companies have had to get really smart and creative in how they compensate their people because if you want someone from some of the most cutting-edge technology-driven organizations, the, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, even, you know, even Microsoft has, has come a long way, you're going to have to figure out how do you overcome the performance-based compensation that, you know, like an Amazon has where, you know, their stock is just going through the roof. And although they pay people with relatively low base salaries compared to the market, the stock just blows them out of the water as far as, you know, being far and beyond what, you know, other people are getting paid in the marketplace. So being really creative and being able to attract that talent and having the right mix of compensation, both base short-term bonus, but also a long-term incentive is something that companies hopefully are thought through in order to attract these uh, high-valued people. I assume you work with a lot of large clients and it sounds like you do. Maybe you work with some small and medium-sized ones as well when you're, when you're looking for executives. What's something that each of those groups can offer the talent that the other really can't? You know, like there may be certain benefits a large employer or work challenges that they can offer, whereas a small can't. And, and there's something probably unique a small company can offer that the large can't. What are those? In some cases, the, the larger companies have more resources. They potentially could have better technology. The perks within some of the larger organizations can be tremendous, whether that's uh, subsidized meals and, uh, you know, great work campuses, those sorts of things. So that that's one side of it. But employees typically know if they're a better fit for a larger organization or a smaller organization, because 
larger organizations, although they may talk a big game and, and want to move quickly, their speed is is often you know, really hampered by the layers of, of management, leadership, approval processes, etc. So if someone knows, hey, I need to be a lot more nimble. I need to be closer to the senior leadership team to be able to push things through faster. Maybe their their ideas will be heard faster and they'll be able to implement things faster than they would if they were with a smaller organization. I would say those are a handful of things that you know I definitely see that sets a smaller versus a larger company apart. Before you and I started recording, we were talking about the three reasons why employees are successful. Can you mention those points? I, I thought they were great. I recently ro- watched a video by a, a guy, Patrick Bet David. He talks a lot about entrepreneurship and, and leadership. And uh, he had come up with the three reasons for him were attitude, effort, and progress. I took that and thought about the people that I've hired or the people I we placed within our organization and and notice that people with great attitudes often seem to be able to stay with companies. Their jobs are often not in danger. I was part of a fast-growing uh, pre-IPO startup in the, uh, the late 90s, and it was amazing how many of my peers just complained about the leadership, complained about the mission, complained about all the things that we were doing because it didn't make sense to them you know, I had spent a lot of time with the CEO and the COO and heard their visions of going public and, and understood that, you know, yeah, I mean, it was all about, you know, driving as much business and, and revenue month to month to tell a great story to Wall Street. Ultimately, the, the organization did not go public, but those people that, that went around and, and just were the Debbie Downers all the time, you know, they, they weren't with the organization very long. The organization grew from about 90 people back down to five. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, again, people with attitude definitely were either able to stay and be successful or were out the door. So so that's one thing. I, I had one employee in my organization for a number of years who was just a rock star. And then I started to see her performance start to fall off. I had some conversations with her. I ultimately put her on notice. You know, when I ultimately decided to let her go, she came back and thanked me for, you know, a great four and a half years and a tremendous opportunity and and how much she learned. But her attitude was what was so amazing because when things were great, she really took ownership and acted as if it was her own company and didn't need that kind of handholding and, uh, to, to make decisions and take initiative within the organization. And that was a, a big reason for her success for many years before things fell off. So that's one. Second is, is effort. If people are coming into the office at eight o'clock and, and leaving at 501, they're probably not going to be looked at as people that are, are really, you know, pushing the envelope and, and trying to get ahead within an organization. I remember back when I was a junior recruiter at a, a boutique firm with about 18 people, there were three of us filling almost 60% of the searches within a, you know, an 18-person search organization. And I sat there and said, wait a second, I'm not working weekends. I'm not working to all hours of the night. I'm just focused on the phone, you know, recruiting all day long. And I was filling you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 21 searches. The next person was about 19 or 20. And then the third person was 17 or 18. After the three of us, 
the next highest number of searches filled by one recruiter was 10. So we were doubling the volume and not putting in, you know, that much more effort. So it's understanding that you got to put in the effort, you need to put in the time, but that doesn't mean working 24-7. And then lastly is the idea of progress, adding value to the firm, helping to move it forward, being invested in its success. That's the difference between someone that is a keeper or someone that's really just calling it in and, you know, is looking to be there for just a paycheck. So finding those employees who are really invested in the progress, looking to them for ideas and insights in terms of how you can grow the organization, how you can improve your culture, how you can drive and be true to your your values, all are great ways to, uh, you know, look at your employees. The thing that strikes me about those three points about why employees are successful, the attitude, effort, and progress, those are things that you would know kind of after the fact, after you already recruit them and hire them into your organization. So what can hiring managers or recruiters do to sort of tease those things out to figure out this person's going to have great attitude. I know they're going to put in the effort and they're going to care about the progress that they're making. Let's go back. I talked about our acid test, right? So for any search, you have the top three to six key criteria that a candidate must have regardless of the role. So whatever the role, junior, senior, you can always create this acid test. From there, not only are you building examples to understand, but say this person's maybe a a lower level, less skilled employee where you're not looking for deep technical efficiency or examples. Maybe it is more about attitude. I had a situation where I'm I'm on a board of um, the New York chapter of a global not-for-profit and we were hiring an administrator for the firm. And we knew that that administrator needed to have a high degree of customer service focus to be able to deal with the members who are all CEOs of uh, of businesses in and around New York. So we would ask questions about, have they ever worked in, in restaurant or retail? And tell us about an experience with a challenging customer and how you dealt with it. And all of a sudden, that question alone, although it has very little to do with what their day-to-day job would be, it was very telling in terms of their style and attitude. And it was, it was probably the biggest disqualifying or qualifying question in the interview process. So that, that's one thing. The second thing is I encourage companies to interview based on the values of their organization. So you can hire and fire based on your company's values. You make it very clear what the values are. You can talk to them about, you know, some examples of how they match up to those values or how they resonate with the values of the organization. And then if someone is not performing or not acting in integrity or in a way that reflects with the values of the company, you can have constructive conversations with your employees around how they're matching up to these values and give them an opportunity to either improve upon it or leave the organization. Matt, you're a fan of the profit first methodology, uh, Mike McCallowitz. So you're you're a fan of that. What? Uh, how does this play a role in the productivity of employees? Companies clearly want to be successful, want to be profitable. Employees want a great place to work. They want a financially sound organization. They want raises and um, opportunities for growth for their careers. Profit first is a great way to help companies get there. So. If we think about the old formula for profitability, it was revenue minus expenses equals profit. But in the profit first methodology, 
it's revenue minus profit equals expenses. So what the finance team or the business owner is able to create is basically you've got the revenue number, total revenue number. You always want to be profitable as an organization. So depending on the size of your business, Mike uh, supplies the percentages in which you need to hold back in your organization for operating expenses, taxes, owner's pay, and profit. He creates a formula. So say you're going to keep 35% in operating expenses, 20% in owner's pay, 30% in taxes, and then that leaves, I believe, 15% for profit. By doing that, you create an automatic cap on what the ultimate expenses can be. By sharing some of this information and being transparent with your employees, and you don't have to be fully transparent, but you can share some of that information to say, hey, if we're going to be able to improve the performance of the company and we're all going to get rewarded in that, we have to focus on top-line revenue growth, we have to focus on reaching our profitability targets, and we need to all focus together on keeping the expenses in check in order to be able to have the money to be able to continue again, grow the company, give raises, share in some of that profit distribution potentially, and create a company that's sustainable for the future. I like that because then it almost flips it to where they, they would now have ownership over like, hey, we got to keep these expenses down or hey, we need to, to hit these top line revenue growths. Uh, it just seems like giving employees some of that information would help keep them on track mm -hmm. and just take ownership. Absolutely. Of so before we park, I want to get your take on just company culture and how important that is for, for businesses nowadays. It's incredible. I think I mentioned to you, I've been thinking a lot about what's been going on at Uber. Uber is a phenomenal product yeah. um, and service. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan. The ease of use is is absolutely spectacular. I love their dream of driverless cars and the the future of transportation. But you know, here is a company that's gotten staggering amounts of investment dollars behind it. And if they have any chance for any sort of liquidity event, people better have the confidence in that organization and their leadership team in order to make that happen. You know, the market is not going to just accept that Uber's, you know, the uh, the dominant force and, and support them if the leadership isn't there, they have a sexist culture, they can't keep senior <laughs> employees, culture more than ever. And again, the Uber example magnifies how challenging it is that if you've got this type of either toxic culture or one that has a, a horrible reputation in the marketplace, it is going to affect every aspect of, of what you do. And in this case, it's, it's potentially hurting Uber from a financial standpoint, which is uh, obviously the gauge in which most companies are measured. Does culture start with the leadership or is it something that the, the employees could really help shape, mold, and kind of own? Yeah, I absolutely think the employees can shape and mold it. When an organization creates uh, values, for example, they don't do that in a vacuum because the chief human resource officer says, hey, guys, these are our values. They should get that from crowdsourcing or surveying or doing focus groups yeah, with their employees, right? So that's what I did. You know, I hired a, a former Deloitte consultant. I had written something out and did not share it with the team. But, you know, we, we brainstormed and we, we came up with different words that we thought represented the culture and the values of MJS. And we came out with quality search and quality is quality, but search stands for smart, efficient, accountable, resourceful, collaborative, and happy clients. 
And, you know, that's really what we strive for in everything that we do and everyone that we work with. Going through that exercise and getting the team in agreement and alignment with those things is really powerful. Um, when I worked at Hydrogen Struggles, we had a plaque on everyone's desk that talked about the partnership spirit of the firm. And it was there. I mean, it was amazing how much people went out of their way to help each other and make sure everyone was successful. And having that recognized, but also reinforced across the organization is is super powerful. And, and again, that starts with your people first. Matt, this has been a really, really fun discussion. And I appreciate you letting me bounce around. I wanted to make sure I captured kind of all the areas that I knew you were an expert in and you just, you, you nailed it. I want to give you a last word. Anything about your company, offers that you have, anything that you just want listeners to, to know about you and what you're up to? Great. Thank you. So we are a, a retained executive search firm. We are based in New York, but we work nationally. We focus on senior level positions that are in the areas of, as we said, transformational talent. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check out our website at mjsearch.com. But also we have a, a free ebook. If you're interested in receiving the ebook, you can text MJ search to 44222. It'll ask you for your email address and we'll shoot that over to you immediately. Thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.